So hello and welcome to our series of podcasts from our Arrow Vision event in 2019. Wow, what a day, eh? What a day. This is um, So this is the first time we've run this event, and essentially what we've done is taken over the whole of Olympia. And I'm not even joking, the whole of Olympia. It's, it's a big old place, isn't it? It really is. It really is. And we filled it. We didn't do too bad, did we, actually? We've done Congrats fantastic. to all the Arrow team involved. That's what I'd say. Very that much. That was a very much big thing. old call, that. So what you're going to listen to over the next uh, six weeks is essentially the sessions, the breakout sessions that we had at Vision. So we've recorded them all as audio files, and we're essentially going to put them out for your listening delights. And I tell you what, that's going to cover a heck of a lot of topics as well, isn't it? Yes. So right. we've had uh, data intelligence, AI, IoT. So apologies in advance, you're going to hear my dulcet tones again. Security, cloud, and next generation data center. Wow. So, I, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I, we're too polite. Mate. We are too polite, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> so I think, um, hopefully, yeah, for your listening pleasure, um, if you were unable to attend Vision this year, um, I think, yeah, you get an insight as to hopefully some of the uh, some of the content, some of the trends, some of the some of the latest news, some of the updates from vendors old and new, yeah, absolutely, and from uh, across the uh, the Arrow family. Yes, very much so. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, you know, I, I would always suggest any feedback, much received. Yeah, hashtag Arrowfamily on Twitter. Yeah. Awesome. And we will, uh, yeah, hope you enjoy it and we'll speak to you soon. Brilliant. Enjoy. Ah, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Next Generation Data Center stream. Um, we are joined today by a, a number of vendors to talk through how AI is impacting next generation data center projects, really. Um, so what we'll do, uh, we'll have six 10-minute presentations, and then we'll have a panel. And we'll uh, also ask you all some questions, as, uh, to, uh, ask some questions as well. So firstly, I'm going to uh, welcome Simon Townsend up from VMware. So please tell us about, uh, there we go, building a foundation for next generation security. the whole 60 minutes as well, that's right, yeah? You guys got nothing else to talk about, right? So, uh, so Simon Townsend, I'm the Director of SDDC Architecture for VMware and EMEA. Uh, interesting title, which really emphasizes the whole software-defined thing has become something that's very real, because we have people who are completely focused on driving that message out to the market now. And it's great to be part of that. Um, really, I wanna, that's weird. Um, I want to pick up on some of the themes, themes that uh, Joe talked about uh, in his keynote as our CTO, which really is in the cloud environment. We can't allow the clouds themselves to become the focus of where we spend our investment, trying to make that all work. So we need a common framework. We need common management security policy. And the idea here is to make the clouds invisible. Just like VMware did with x86 infrastructure back in the day, what made us really famous, we're trying to repeat the same trick at the multi-cloud level. And if you don't do that as a customer, as a, as a supplier, someone working in IT, you're just going to carry on being bogged down in operations. And fundamentally, we all know there's no real value for a customer in that. You need to focus on the apps and the data. That's where the value is. So if you think about what we've built, it's about taking that 
fundamental element of delivery around private cloud. VMware's focus here is to turn that into a Lego brick of which VCF, VMware Cloud Foundation, is the fundamental building block and actually use that to present up an abstracted view to all of the stakeholders who need to consume this from the admin, the SRE, all the way up to the DevOps guys who are thinking about driving this thing at the same time as developing it using standard APIs. And that just frees me up from worrying about the detail so that I can then focus on the value, which is the applications. And I think, you know, there's various ways you can do this in the private environment. VMware's really leading the way here, and it's the same approach on the different clouds. But the problem is, there are many clouds. So the real focus here, I'm going to make a contentious point here, or make, make a bold statement. I think the future here is to actually make this platform a common substrate. So that actually, you can start to just make the assumption the architecture, the APIs, the way I consume this is the same everywhere. I want to abstract away from that. And it makes an absolutely massive difference. There's a great story that's been circulating around inside VMware. Of, it's actually customer Freddie Mac, secondary mortgage market in the US. Two years ago, CTO made a commitment they were going to be completely cloud within two years. Two years later, same story, less than 10% migrated to the cloud. And they've already spent a huge amount of the pot that they intended to spend on the whole migration. Adopting a solution that looks more like this with a common infrastructure, they've been able to massively accelerate that. And actually, they, within, within uh, five weeks of adopting actually the VMware, VMware Cloud on AWS solution, they've migrated over 2,000 VMs to a cloud environment within that five-week period, just massively accelerating it. So it's all about achieving those standards. And I think, you know, it really emphasizes this is about establishing a platform. And there's a really key reason why we need to have that platform. You need to have that common set because actually we need to stop focusing on the platform. You want to focus on the data and the applications. We still need to secure, protect, and analyze it wherever it is. And as Joe said, the application is now the network. It's really complicated. So what I actually want to do is propose a different way of thinking about security. If you think about what's happened in the security industry, it's been pretty much completely focused on reactive, chasing bad, making sure we know the bad things that are out there, the threats that are out there, and eliminating those, and almost no focus on preventative. We need to invert that. So I want to focus on minimizing the attack surface and only allowing the known good. And actually, this is a fantastic application for AI. And that's where VMware's been focused. So actually, my application looks like this. It's everywhere. Very distributed across different platforms, different architectures. But it is possible. If you're in a position where you've got a common substrate that you can interrogate, you can build the database of all of the known good states of the applications. And think about this from VMware's position. We're actually the hypervisor for some, well, many millions, hundreds of millions of virtual machines. 
So we're in a position where we can start to collect that metadata. Remember, we can see everything that's going on inside that VM, all of its processes, all of its memory usage, all of its communications. So we can actually then start to blueprint all of that. So at the network level, but then at the host level as well. And this puts us in a very unique position to actually adopt a different approach to how you secure. Some fundamental things about a solution that would look like this. It's got, to, it's got to know everything about the host. It's got to know everything about how it's been booted and be in control of that state. But actually, at the same time, be outside the domain of the applications themselves. So unlike traditional agent-based approaches, there's no risk of the agent being hijacked. And then it needs to be absolutely everywhere, which again really emphasizes the need for this common platform that is distributed everywhere, giving you the same APIs and the ability to, to, to collect the data across that distributed environment. And then you can set up an environment where it learns from all the hosts. So you can actually fingerprint the known good and start to limit this. So this is really new. So there aren't public references out there, but the amount of traction we're getting in the marketplace for this type of approach, uh, it's across every sector. We're working with media companies. Very interestingly, we're working with um, public sector, defense organizations around the globe starting to think about adopting a different approach. And the example I'm most familiar with is actually a, a major UK supermarket retailer who have recognized that a, a centralized security infrastructure just isn't agile enough for what they want to do to adopt a self-service approach to private cloud. They need to drive the security policy management out to the application owners and then adopt a, a, a risk management-based approach based on when thing cha things change from that known good state. And this is helping them really redefine how they approach provision of IT services. And this is wrapping this all up into something that we're starting to describe as the service-defined firewall. So what VMware is doing is building all of the elements that you need to fully automate this to ensure that when you provision a service, it's provisioned in its known good state. Zero trust, minimal attack surface, only the communication and processes that are known to be part of that application are allowed to run and communicate, which completely redefines how we think about security. So this is a fantastic application of AI in the modern data center. So that's what we're up to. And I did that in nine minutes. Brilliant. Thank you, Simon. Wonderful. Good man. So we move on now to Paul from Dell. Welcome, Paul. <laughs> That's right. Um, what I wanted to do, rather than sort of talk you through um, a series of products that we have, and, 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 and that's great, there's a booth there, the guys will go and talk to you about the products. 
as much as you want and as deep as you want to go. Uh, what I instead wanted to do is talk you through um, a couple of examples of customers, and they're two very different customers, but I also, when we were planning this with Arrow, and by the way, what a fantastic event this is, this is really cool. Um, I, I picked customers that are in the US, so none of you would be sitting there thinking, that's my customer, why wasn't that approved? Or uh, that's my customer, but I didn't know they were doing that. So they're US examples very deliberately, so nobody feels uncomfortable with them. But everything that we talk about are perfectly viable right here in the United Kingdom, in Ireland, in whatever country you want to do business in. But first I want to talk about, um, has anyone here ever owned a farm, worked on a farm, run a farm, has any been employed to do farming? I've worked on a farm. It, it, it's back-breaking work. For those of you, you all look far too happy in your life to do back-breaking physical farming work. Um, Aero Farms is a really weird farm, and when you meet David, he's passionate about what he does. Um, and you might look at this and go, Paul, is this a hydroponics farm that we heard about in the 80s and the 90s? And what has farming got to do with AI? Well, let me talk you through it. David's very keen to take some of the modern technology, that's, that's soilless growth um, and reduced water growth, and, and prove a concept that you can grow healthy, edible plants quicker and better than you can if you plant them in the soil and grow them like we have done for some say 6,000 years, some say more. And I get it, things have been growing longer than 6,000 years, but they think that's when agriculture as we would recognize it was started in the Mesopotamia district. That's the golden triangle back then. Iran, Iraq, places like that where civilization started. It's just like the VMware pitch with John, isn't it? Lots of history in behind it. David's passionate about growing plants, and each one of these plants has a little camera above it or a camera with a near field, so they can monitor the growth of each plant. Now, interestingly, they know what good looks like. They know what the plant is, and they know how it should grow, given that they're measuring every plant's growth, they can see what a mean it looks like. Clever statistics say that is the mean growth for a plant. That is the optimum point to pick the plant. Now you're saying, what do aero farms do in, in terms of turning plants into money? This is the really cool bit. Have any of you ever been to a very expensive restaurant where as the dishes, some of this, you can nod, yes. You, yeah, um, and some of the dishes have those little herbs on them that make it look beautiful. Aerofarms grows those microherbs. This is, this is not food for the masses yet. This is proving a concept and making money while they're at it. So there's a camera observing every plant, and then the camera's looking at how the plant is thriving. It tells uh, an algorithm, a machine, that stores every piece of data about the plant, the atmosphere that the plant is growing in, and says, pick the plant now, or that plant is not healthy. Remove it from the trough and put a new plant in. They are then using that data to train their AI so that they don't have to employ farmers to do it. And this is Aero Farms. This is a farm in New Jersey. You didn't expect me to be talking about a farm in New Jersey. Has anyone been to New Jersey? Ah, you've been to New Jersey. Um, it, it doesn't look like, if you go on Google Earth, it does not look like there's a lot of farms in New Jersey maybe 200 years ago. Aerofarms is in a warehouse, as you would expect. All of the light that the plants use is artificial light. Everything about Aerofarms has that artificiality to it, including the intelligence by which every plant is monitored, 
and we tell the AeroFarms guys when to pick them. And now you're going to say, is there a little robot comes along and picks them? That is the only manual intervention. You'll see, and there's a video link at the bottom of this slide, you'll see that these things look like they slide down and roll around. They do. And that's for when they're harvested, they harvest the whole trough. Now, as a channel partner, am I saying go and tell every farmer that they've got the completely wrong business model? What they should be doing is building warehouses and building a big AI engine. And you know, speak to David over in New Jersey, and they will tell you how to make a modern farm. I am not suggesting you do that to your agricultural customers. In fact, some of you might not have agricultural customers, and that's okay as well. What I'm suggesting is you can take a startup business that has at the very beginning a concept that needs technology and the automation that IDC talked about this morning. Look for the type of business that is phrases like born in the cloud, but born of the generation of AI. They are the businesses, whether they're growing microherbs or whether they're doing sophisticated things with uh, medical technology, they are the businesses where you as a channel partner will have to sell them a lot of equipment and know-how because their business is a factory of technology. It's just like the web tech companies were a few years ago. The difference that AI makes, we believe, is it allows you to do things in the real world as well as in the virtual world. And I want to take you a second example of this. And this is a, a very, very um, traditional business in some ways, Draper or Drapper in the US. They're an engineering firm. And this is the engineering consulting business that we have. And again, there is a fantastic video in the slide. I, I, I'd urge you as you get the slides to take, or just Google uh, Dell EMC Drapper or Draper. Um, the consulting engineering business has started to use AI to do something quite revolutionary. And I really approve of this. And again, it's difficult in the UK to kind of totally get what they're doing. You've all read about the wildfires last summer that swept through California. And you remember that? And, and, and just hundreds of hectares of land get, get consumed by this fire. And then when you see a news story, I think that you may have seen stories of wildfires in Greece as well. When you see these stories of wildfires, you then hear this will cost billions to, to make good. And most people kind of wonder why. There's some wood burnt and a few people's houses. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, as, as Drapper pull through, when their consulting engineers get to site, all of that intense heat that's burnt, not just through woodland, but through all the things that human beings put in their houses, industrialized woodlands, it burns through trucks, cars, you name it, and it creates, it creates an ecological disaster zone. That the soil and the water table of that area can be irrevocably destroyed depending how much fire damage there has been of things like factories, garages, etc. Well, you think about it, petrol station burns down and in Hollywood there's a big boom. In Hollywood, it doesn't talk about the multi-gallons of petrol that are now flowing through the water table. So Drapper go and assess that. They assess that as a channel partner through buying iPads. Other tablets are available. But they also have a large data center that takes satellite data. And this is using AI very cleverly. They're using this to reduce the John talked about middle management's in trouble. They're, they're reducing the number of consultants that are traping through these burnt out fields 
by using the satellite images linked to an AI engine they've developed for their data center, and that is their own IP. And what they're saying to the guys in the field is, go here, it looks like that's going to have more problems than here. So they spend less time reviewing areas that look like they're pretty good anyway. They still get reviewed, but they spend less time reviewing it than areas that from space look like there's very serious fire damage. Very serious, because again, the satellites can see not just in the visual spectrum, but they can see other damage that our eyes wouldn't see. There's other light they use. And what does this mean for a channel partner? You've got a company that's consulting engineering. They will tell you they don't use much technology. It, they will tell you that people are their business. They are being disrupted by satellite technology and AI improving the efficiency of their people on the ground. So what we'd urge every one of Arrow's partners to look at your customer base, look at what they do to make money, and have a conversation with them about how they can make more money or reduce costs by delivering that automation into their systems. We're behind you all the way as Dell Technologies and the family of companies, and we've got examples of people who are doing this right now in the UK. Come talk to us on the booth and we'll tell you more about what your customers might be doing today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Wonderful. Wonderful, interesting insight there. So, over to you, Tim. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Brager. Thank you. Oh, come down. Good afternoon, everybody. So, don't fall off at the edge, and I, I don't mean this edge, which is quite large, Vince. But um, what I mean by that is uh, we look after our core data centers extremely well. Um, we create uh, multi-cloud environments, hybrid cloud environments, hyper-convergence. We talk about all these great structures. Um, but don't forget about the edge compute that exists within your customers today. So remote sites, robo, retail, all these kind of organizations that are struggling with managing uh, edge infrastructures today. So I, we can all agree that the needs of our customers are driving um, an inherent change in our technologies. Um, and that will be from our devices and the hardware accelerators that we have in our devices, but also around our edge and this new, t this new paradigm that goes from device to edge to core to cloud um, and everything there in between, including the data and the processes involved, but also the data center intelligence. So, we, we heard Dell and we heard VMware talk about how we utilize intelligence at the data center to, to deliver security, but also to revolutionize agriculture or the way in which we assess and analyze that data from, from a bird's eye view. But we also use AI to create a more efficient and performant data center as well. So that's a key fundamental change. So let's look at this new paradigm around this, uh, this edge. So Lenovo took an opportunity to then redefine the story of edge compute. So what does it mean? It's IoT driven for the most part. We're looking and seeing tremendous amounts of data being filed back to edge computers. Customers are looking to do more at the edge than they do at the core. So we're taking that opportunity, identifying that IoT equals masses amounts of data collection plus the analytics of the artificial intelligence inferences at the edge to then deliver intelligent localized actions on-prem or on-site or at location, wherever that might be. It could be an offshore platform. It could be a research vessel. It could be a research site, those kind of things. So they're driving mission-critical apps at our edge level as well. 
So we need it to be highly available. And we'll look at how we utilize edge infrastructure in just a minute, but um, the lower level of latency, now this is key. The, an opportunity lost is an opportunity cost within these business, and we need to address that, because if the data is going off to core or off to cloud, then has to be analyzed by the big data analytics softwares and applications, and then is sent back to site, the opportunity may have already been lost within these organizations to, to, to use that data. So by delivering that resource on-prem at the edge, we can then solve those issues. And of course, primary concern for all of our customers at that level is gonna be security and privacy. So this could again plays into VMware's perspective from a security, but also from a hardware. So we went and spoke to our edge customers and we said, what is it that you need to see at the edge to ensure that you have everything that you need to deliver to, to today and, for to, and scale for tomorrow? Security was a number one concern. Every single customer turned around and said security was a massive concern. Um, and just keep these in mind, and I've color-coded them to help you to, in the next slides, but also environment. Edge locations are not clean, cooled data centers. They're probably a mezzanine floor somewhere if we're thinking about retail. It's not gonna be an easy location to access. Our server, our general data center server hardware doesn't like these environments very well. Deployment. We need to be able to access these. We need to be able to put them anywhere. Um, so I talk about deployment in terms of where we can fit this. It needs to be a small form factor. We can't have these 19-inch these wide pizza boxes that weigh a 10 ton in all these locations. We just haven't got the space or the resources to be able to deploy them. Easy management. Customers at edge locations don't necessarily know what a server is, how it operates, how to manage it, how to switch it on. So. How do we do that? And then connectivity. Wired is always great. Perfect. 10 gig, 100 gig, 1 gig, 25 gig, however you want to play it. But you also need to offer the option that these, that these facilities are not going to be available at remote locations. So we look at potentially Wi-Fi and cellular networks as well to deliver at, uh, at those locations. And of course, compute and storage. What I mean by that, it needs to be server-grade components. You can't put components in there that aren't going to deliver on the virtualization stacks that we're looking to deploy in these systems to deliver that. So Lenovo took a look at those and then thought, well, what can we do to address those concerns? And please keep these in mind until I reach the end of the presentation. You'll see why it all makes sense at the end. Secure, physical and cyber tampered protection. So devices at the edge need to be considered at risk 100% of the time. They're going to have, they could potentially have physical access or, or cyber access to these machines. So if it's in a janitor's or a manager's office, have they locked the door? When they left for the day, who knows? Environment, so rugged. Can these things work in and operate in a, in, a, in a condition where it's not a data center? It's going to be hot. It's going to be dusty. There's going to be high vibration. We can do these things today. We've seen it. We've revolutionized these kind of technologies in our PCs and notebooks and ruggedized systems today. Lenovo are famous for doing this. Compact, as, of, as before, we need to identify anywhere we can put these objects, whether that be on a ceiling, in a desk, in a car, on a boat, wherever it needs to go. And, but we need to offer the mounting options to ensure that we can consider that. And then, of course, management, we underpin all of this with X clarity from a management perspective because it allows us to, to, to reach into a, a zero-touch, low-touch activation. Again, this goes back to customers not knowing how to manage a server on edge locations, so we'll make it easy for them by just plugging it in 
and then remote accessing those particular systems. Now, I'll leave connectivity and, uh, and performance off because we've touched on that in terms of the cellular address because they're not always going to have the networking capability that they've always wanted to be able to achieve those systems. If we take, uh, if we take retail, for example, as, as an example of that. So, how do we use this? Now, this is where the clever stuff comes in and this is why AI is so important to Lenovo's uh, structure. We create some very key alliance partnerships and I'm going to take you through two examples of this today but we also have alliance partnerships with VMware who address concerns in terms of going from on-prem to cloud hybridity and multi-cloud capability. One of these is scale computing. On the face of it, a hyper-converged vendor, ISV. But with technology and AI, we can deliver a full store infrastructure available to customers that will power and understand not only their uh, core applications and DevOps, but we can start to create simple systems where it identifies localized promotions. So how valuable would it be to a retail infrastructure to be able to create a, a localized promotions for end of aisle, uh, end of aisle promotions? So it will take the analytical data. So what's, what's hot in the north might not be in the south. So by, and you can maximize profit and revenue within a retail organization by using a system like this that controls those aspects. So scale computing, and then we can create these cookie cutter bills for the store sizes that they're looking to deliver. So we can just deliver on-prem experiences straight away, spool them up at the edge. Now, this one's a bit more special. So we partner with Pivot3. And again, on the surface of it, is a hyper-converged vendor. Now, Pivot3 have done something extremely neat, and they've aligned with uh, video analytics software. So they're similar to how, uh, to how Dell presented to you just a moment ago about that bird's eye view of, of, of those objects. But we can do that even more granular using CCTV solutions um, for uh, site security, potentially as a service if you want to wrap it up as an MSP or through, through a vendor-aligned managed service arrangement. Um, we could do the uh, crime detection, facial recognition, vehicle recognition, and this is important, live customer opportunity that we're working with at the moment is um, we're talking to a, an organization where uh, they want to utilize cameras to identify people throwing litter at their cars. So it will identify the car, who's own, who it owns, check it up against DVLA records, and then bill you for the cleanup. I can pretty, you know, guarantee that our highways will be a lot cleaner. So off the back of all that, I'd like to introduce to you the new Lenovo SE350 Edge server. So we need to be able to reach these locations, and this is how we do it. That's it. This is, fulfills all those boxes. From a security perspective, you might be wondering, well, you can turn it on its side and the keys fall out. And what I mean by that is that this is using a, a piece of management software that uh, uses accelerometers to detect uh, tampering and movement. Um, so it will delete the self-encrypting drive keys and the data becomes effectively useless to whoever's taking the server away. Um, and what that means is that we then have to remotely manage to put the, the keys back on. So if security at edge locations is a paramount concern, that takes it away, which means every time it's being moved unlawfully, the data becomes useless and therefore protecting your customers. So this is available August this year. Uh, but please come speak to us on our stand.
and we'll love to take you through more of the details of this particular product to deliver these solutions. Thank you. Hold on, I, I almost feel like I need to fill this. Pretty impressive, isn't that? Pass it back. Pass it around. Pretty impressive. You're, he's never going to see it again now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to welcome Simon now from uh, Palo Alto. There you go, sir. <laughs> Good afternoon. As the fades up the right one, thank you very much. Good afternoon, uh, Simon Williams, uh, head up the Channel SE team in Amir for Palo Alto Networks. Um, so the security guy gets to stand up here after some of my uh, colleagues and friends in the industry have talked about their own security capabilities. But actually, what they did was a great job of explaining why security is so fundamentally important in everything we do. I think between us collectively. You know, we make sure that applications, services, capabilities, networks, compute are uh, delivered quickly uh, and at scale and in real time. And, and really, that real time has changed the way in which we use information technology. The infrastructures we sit in, the environments we support have fundamentally changed. Now, I take a slightly different view of the world, um, and you'd expect that from the, 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 the pure security guy. Absolutely. Knowing what looks good and knowing what looks bad and being able to stop it is fundamental to an effective security architecture. Zero trust was mentioned by a um, colleague from, from VMware, and that's absolutely an effective approach to, to security. Um, the problem is, in this modern world, the adversary, the person that we're trying to, to understand and work out who they are and proactively prevent, continuously changes. They are becoming um, smarter. They are being able to obfuscate their, uh, their tools and techniques in a much better, smarter way uh, and actually mimic legitimate traffic uh, in a much better way. And that makes it difficult for us as security specialists to say, actually, yeah, this is good, this is bad. And that puts us into the kind of the bottom 1% here. So in 99% of the times, you know, it's, it's, I won't say it's easy, but the technologies that are out there, the, the profiling, the, the known stuff and information that we have is great at giving me the ability to say, right, yep, I'm going to stop you. But it's the 1% that are really toxic. It's the 1% that are the danger to us and our organizations. Uh, and there have been lots and lots of examples in the press and the news about, you know, about this happening. So... So what are our customers? What do we see as the, the security overlay to everything, all the greatness in this, in this theater? What do we see? We see customers taking um, a really dodgy build of a slide. Wow. I'm going to blame. Uh, uh, what the hell? It'll build out. There you go. Um, what we see is... Customers taking uh, a very severe reaction sometimes to this. In, in two or three weeks' time, this hall will be full for InfoSec. Yep, market-leading, best-of-breed security technologies that have zero integration. But they'll come here because they know they need a, pro a product for, uh, for sandboxing. They know they need a product for cloud. They need something for the endpoint. They need something for their hardware. And what customers tend to do and the way in which they've reacted in the past 
is by buying those best of breed technologies. Now, great, we've ticked a box. We've, we've satisfied the requirement. But the challenge that we have now is that actually they've got lots of different management interfaces, lots of GUIs, and lots of data. And all of a sudden, they're in a situation where there's just too much information. How do they react to that? How do they actually work out truly what's going on in their infrastructure? So then they employ somebody to sit there and look at that data, an analyst, someone to manually sit there, look at information, and make decisions, and then apply protections within the security posture to prevent things. That's a great, you know, really good approach to things. Um, how many of you drive a car with an automatic gearbox? Yeah, I do. I can't physically change gear in a car as quickly as the gearbox in my automatic. That comes down to automation. That comes down to working with the machine to rapidly make decisions and change the state to give us better protection and prevention. Okay? The problem here is we're relying on someone, a person. Now, we're all human beings. We all believe that we're the best at what we do. We will make mistakes, whether it be through pressure, workload, numbers, volumes, sick, it's Friday night, I want to go to the pub, whatever it might be, we do make mistakes. And that leaves us open. Remember, we're talking about 1%. Um, and then the last thing, and this really is a fundamental of security, and I, I stand by this through everything I say. You can't secure what you don't see. You might have built-in security within your private cloud technology giving you best-of-breed security. You might have something else on the endpoint. You might have camera systems in your data centers, in your offices. But the reality is, if you don't see the traffic, you don't see the applications, the threats, the URLs, the user activity, how can you make smart security decisions? And that's the challenge that we face. It's very easy to miss those indicators. So really, from a Palo Alto Networks point of view, there are three um, fundamental things that we need to, to give us that, that capability. Yeah. Now, we're here to talk about artificial intelligence. I'll come to that. Um, but great prevention you know, comes back to, to VMware and the capabilities they have. And, and our methodology and philosophy from day one was prevent the known. You know, profile things and understand what's bad and just stop it. And that is a really, really powerful approach to security. But as I said, the adversary is getting smarter, so we've got to keep up with them. Well, that's where artificial intelligence or machine learning comes in. So, uh, yeah, we get lots of data. You know, Palo Alto Networks is not just an endpoint um, or cloud business or network business. We do all three. We, we span multiple different uh, security vectors. We take data from all of those places. We take data from users. We take machine data, behavioral data, uh, and put that into a common data lake and apply analytics and intelligence on top of that, um, actually with, with human intervention and capabilities as well. So really now, we're able to, to understand the true indicators of compromise and really understand what's going on. Why is this person who is an administrator all of a sudden trying to connect to a server that they haven't previously connected to? Is that a change in role? Have their uh, details been compromised? Is there something suspicious going on that I need to know about? And this is the big, big one, the last one here. 
It's all very well having artificial intelligence, machine learning, lots of data. That's great for me as a vendor. Look how big my data lake is. Yeah, that's great. But if you can't use that data to make smart, real-time, um, and, and automated actions, then it's useless. And that's what we're about. Come back to the beginning. Our focus is prevention of the threat. Well, we've got to understand what it is first, learn from it, gain information about indicators of compromise, then apply that dynamically to our security technology through this integration to automatically prevent or remediate if we found something new. Sounds really cool, right? Does to me. Now, in the spirit of, of today, you know, we're talking about a data center consisting of many market-leading technologies and brands and capabilities. Our approach is sensors in the environment. We now know that a typical environment, a typical enterprise is no longer typical. You know, 20 years ago when I started in the industry, you'd walk through the door in the office, you'd sit down at your desktop PC, which was a Dell Optiplex normally, had a huge great screen on the desk, you'd log in, you'd work. At five o'clock, you'd finish, you'd go home. And then some bugger bought a BlackBerry in the office and that was the end of life for all of us. But that was easy to secure because I came into a physical location. We now know that, you know that physical location is much wider. So we're looking at various different points. And the piece on the top there is the interesting piece. What we call Cortex-XDR are actually an open API framework. Comes back to exactly what we said. How do we integrate with our technology partners? How do we share this information? How do we learn from each other and dynamically change our security state? And that's exactly what it does. And you know, just to finish up, security has to be everywhere. The data center, the cloud, the core, the perimeter, the endpoint, the mobile device, it really has to be everywhere because we have to see everything to be able to secure it. So with that, I think I'm finished. I had the one minute, so thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you, Simon. Oh, there we go. We're going through your slides. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Max. So, uh, good afternoon. I'm just going to do you a case study on a company called Zenuity, which I'm sure none of you have heard of. But before I do that, I'm just going to go briefly into the product that these guys are using with Pure and NVIDIA. So the product is specifically called Flashblade. It targets high-performance compute environments. It's a scale-out infrastructure. Um, <coughs> it presents the storage via NFS or S3. So that's a very kind of high-level overview of what that does, just so you know what I'm talking about on the uh, next slides. So Zenuity, you won't have heard of this company. They were set up in early 2017. They're half-owned by Volvo and half-owned by Autoliv, right? Everyone's heard of Volvo, but who are Autoliv? So believe it or not, you're probably running Autoliv technology in your car. So they invented the three-point seatbelt back in the early 20s. And as a result, they are now one of the leading manufacturers of car safety technology, which you're likely to find in whatever you're driving today. And these guys were looking at uh, the deep learning infrastructure. So yes, Zenuity have storage from pretty much all of the vendors that are here today. But this was all around their deep learning um, systems that they were building. So like most customers, they had a problem. Right, so first of all, they realized that NVIDIA GPUs, that is the answer to do machine learning and deep learning, but they didn't want to go down the route of buying servers and buying lots of individual GPU cards to put in them. 
So they use the uh, NVIDIA DGX1, which if you've not seen it, it's kind of, I'd call it a server, but they probably call it something different. It's 3U in height, but it has 40,000 GPU cores in it. So literally in a 3U box, you've got the equivalent of two or three racks worth of normal servers. A lot of the primary jobs they were running are the neural networks. It's all the training jobs, right? So, you know, the classic case of machine learning and deep learning is here's a million pictures of a dog, here's a million pictures of a cat, and you tell it what's a cat and a dog, and then you give it a picture and say, is that a cat or a dog? And hopefully they work it out. So doing this, it's a bit more advanced for cars because they've got to work out, is that a tree? Is it a human? Is it a child? You know, what do I need to do in certain situations? And it does generate huge amounts of data. So one of the technologies they use, they get radar images, they get LiDAR, which is like radar, but what it's doing is sending a pulsed beam of laser to an object which bounces back, and from that it can start to create the 3D images. And it's 3D images that you need to actually work out what that object is in front of you. Data sets are huge, right? So the NVIDIA DGX1 is a really, really powerful box. But this is almost going back to the early days of when I was at Pure like five years ago in terms of flash, you know, what was the problem the SQL databases had five years ago? The CPU sat in a wait state because the storage was so slow that the processor was just twiddling his thumbs saying, well, I'm waiting for data. This is exactly the same thing that happened to these guys. So the DGX1s are immensely powerful, but the data set was so large it couldn't fit inside the box on the SSDs or in memory, so it had to go and drag the data set from an external storage device and they were getting huge slowdowns. So basically, they spent a lot of money on DGX1s and weren't getting the value out of them because the storage was not returning the data quick enough. So obviously, they need a new storage system. And they did pretty much look at everybody under the sun, whether it was the uh, traditional scale-out vendors, whether it was software-defined, whether it was kind of you know, a pizza box approach with hundreds of parallel servers. They looked at everything. But for these guys, like a lot of customers, when they first looked at it, they said, how big is your system? How much does it cost? What's the cost per gigabyte, cost per terabyte? And it didn't take long for them to realize that that's entirely the wrong metric to look at, right? Because if you're looking at just cost per gigabyte or terabyte, there's a ton of cheap solutions out there, right? And to be honest, we're not one of them. But in terms of you know, what they looked at was the cost per teraflop. How much does it cost me to do this processing? How busy can I keep my DGX1 GPUs? Because if I spent X amount on a DGX1, I need to keep that thing busy. Keeping it busy means I can learn more, which means I can train my systems better. So the initial solution from this <coughs> was four NVIDIA DGX1s in a deep learning training cluster and just two flash blades to start off with. So there's roughly about a petabyte of data there, which again was too much to fit inside a DGX1, hence they went out uh, to external storage. But this was about putting the entire AI pipeline. So what we mean about the pipeline is if you look at machine learning, deep learning, basically you get the data from the vehicles, you then have to ingest it, you then have to clean it, you then have to transform it, you have to tag it. There's about five or six kind of siloed processes that you go through. And most pipelines, it's you know, servers and storage for that job, servers and storage for that job, and you're copying data from one silo to another. Whereas with FlashBlade, the way this works is kind of one giant data hub is that all of your different areas of pipeline can talk to that same piece of storage. So these guys found that it, you know, they could do true linear scaling. So as they needed more capacity, they added individual blades into the pure storage flash blade system. And then they would add DGX1 so they could scale the compute, they could scale the capacity as and when they needed. You kind of fast forward 18 months later, and they've now got 14 DGX1s, and they've worked out a nice ratio of roughly how many DGX1s they can work with a flash blade chassis. 
Now, what this lent us, uh, what this kind of led to, was both NVIDIA and Pure having a light bulb moment saying, hang on, this has worked really, really well. Maybe we could create something from this. And we came up with what we call ARI, the AI-ready infrastructure. So this is a converged solution. It's a reference architecture, a validated design based around components of, obviously, you can see there, the DGX1 servers, Pure FlashBlade, and then more importantly, the deep learning stack. So it's not that difficult to get these components and just plug them together. The key bit that really makes all this hang together is this NVIDIA optimized deep learning framework, which is tuned to make the DGX1s absolutely fly with the pure storage flash blade. Because you know, there is still a lot of complexity behind this. This is one of the areas of IT where, to be honest, things aren't getting simpler. But in terms of this optimized framework, then that takes half the battle out in terms of making it easy to use, tuning the right things to get everything in sync. Plus, off the back of this, you've got Kubernetes orchestration, so the DGX optimized management framework, and then, last but not least, pure storage providing the foundation for all of this. And as we've matured over time, you know, you might be thinking, well, DGX1, that's kind of so last year. You know, they're talking about DGX2 now, which is this thing, which actually looks like a fridge, right? But uh, there's no beer in it. That's later. Um, so, you know, the way we design this, again, working with NVIDIA, they say, well, we should make, you know, scalable reference architectures going from something very small, a couple of petaflops of performance, all the way up to, you know, a really huge one with up to six petaflops of performance and loads of flash blade. So I'm coming in kind of way under time, which is good because I don't want to speak to you guys all day long. So you're nice, right, but not that nice. So I thought I'd leave you with this kind of final quote. Right? This is, you know, what we're looking at is that, you know, it's developing for the future. The whole thing about autonomous driving software and Zenuity are the guys that are going to be powering the Volvo cars, plus their software is getting used by a lot of the other manufacturers in the industry. And to be honest, I think, you know, autonomous driving software is one of the few areas where you can't get this stuff wrong, right? Because it's kind of life or death in terms of who it's going to kill first. Depends how they write their algorithms. I know who I'd choose. But in terms of that, I mean, this is a public case study. If you have customers that are interested in these kind of technologies, then these guys will happily take a reference call. Thanks. Here we go, sir. Thanks, James. Am I on? Hey, good. So I'm last one of the day. I would say that I'm standing between everyone in the pub, but we're doing this again straight away afterwards, pretty much. So I'm James Hall. I'm part of the worldwide pre-sales team um, for Hewlett Packard. And I'm going to talk to you about AI, um, and I'm going to talk to you about a huge use case for UI, which is our own use of HP InfoSight to manage our storage, uh, to manage our customers in the field storage products and help them manage their systems better. And you know, from, from our perspective, you know, we've been through several waves. I'm not going to talk about the traditional technology waves. Um, Max mentioned this. You know, we've been, kind of been through the Flash era. So most organizations have or are moving towards Flash. That's for performance. It's for consolidation. It's now because it's affordable. And in some instances, it's just down to the economics of the city that you're in and how much it costs to power and cool these things. So we're kind of still riding this wave. We're still coming out the back of it. There's still a lot to do there. And we've really been firmly in the cloud era at the moment. And if we look at what the cloud era is, lots of excitement. It's all about agility. It's all about cost. And actually, what customers are realizing is cloud's nice. And if you put the right workloads in there, you pay the right amount of money for it. But in some instances, it doesn't make sense to put everything out there. 
So what we're seeing is effectively IT sprawl. So we went through a big period of trying to consolidate everything and bring everything together, you know, slim down our infrastructure, and all of a sudden public cloud came along, and now all of a sudden we're starting to see that sprawl happen again. And so for HP, we're now talking to customers about the intelligence era. And what do we mean by that? I haven't met a single organization across Europe or the globe that tells me they have too many operations staff. Everyone today is struggling for resources. They've got too many projects going on. They haven't got enough time to do stuff. They've got new projects that need to, they need to start working on, but they've still got the old stuff that they need to carry on managing. And so if you think about that, we'll put it into some context. Today in InfoSight, we have 80,000 plus storage arrays sending telemetry data back to HPE. It's a significant number. And so we take that information and we start to learn not only how our customers are using the technology, but we start to learn about what workloads look like. And then we start to look for problems that we see. And we also start to look at things, okay, how can we make our products better for customers based on what we're seeing them use them in the field? And at the same time, how do we take all this information and deliver it back to the customer to take a load of their operational overheads away? And actually, from a HP perspective, and we saw some announcements beginning of this year, you know, intelligent era for us really started at storage. Today now we've included the DL servers in that. We will start to include Synergy in that. And we're actually working with third-party partners, so people like Dayterra, where we have some big installations that are sold by HP and managed by HP, delivering you know, InfoSight capabilities for third-party products. Because what we see from our customers' perspective is the value it brings because it frees up the operational overhead and lets them actually get on and go and do their day job and deliver more value to the business. And I'll give you a statistic. Um, today, you know, if we look at InfoSight, more than 50% of the cases that are automatically opened by InfoSight or the storage array itself have absolutely nothing to do with the storage. It's to do with the stack that sits above it. So again, we're talking about AI, not just across the storage platforms that we're supporting for customers, but the things that they are connecting into and the hypervisors that they are using. So we're doing not only performance capacity planning, capacity management, but we're also doing cross-stack telemetry across those devices. And I'll give you another interesting stat. 54% of every case that is opened by InfoSight is automatically solved by InfoSight, i.e. no level one, no level two, or no level three support engineer goes anywhere near it. And that is done by the system learning. And I'll give you a good example. Uh, so this is on Nimble Storage Systems. We had a customer that had seen a memory leak. They had a very specific configuration for storage, operating system, and the stack that they were operating within. So we saw this memory leak happening. The case got raised. It got past the level three because a memory leak is, is, you know, can be serious if you don't catch it quickly enough. We get to the customer. We tell them what's happening. We reboot the node to make sure that the, the memory leak is ba basically reset. And then engineering start working on a patch. InfoSight, by the time that had happened, and we're talking less than 57 minutes, by the time, that, by the time we'd got to that point, InfoSight had gone through the entire Nimble install base that was dialing home and found 41 other customers that were in exactly the same situation and was predicting to the minute when their memory leak would occur and the controller node would reboot. So these are the types of things that the InfoSight is doing from a learning perspective. We have a whole team of data scientists and the system is constantly evolving. So as we start to add the telemetry that we get from physical servers and we start to tie that with our customers using storage and potentially third-party products, we start to take that operational overhead away. I'm a performance specialist, have been for years. You know, if we look at you know, case statistics, a significant number of cases that we get, I would say probably about 35 to 40% are normally performance related. 
Again, that's where some of these 50% up here sits. We get a significant number of those. HP InfoSight is clever enough to understand what a workload looks like, and when it dramatically changes, or even changes slightly, but it deviates from what it does all of the time, it's clever enough to say to the customer, this system's been doing this for like six months, and now it's doing this. So is that right? Or do you need to go and potentially look at it? Or actually, we think it's wrong, and we think it's wrong because we can see a problem in the network or the communication between the storage and the, between the, storage and the host itself. And we're now starting to build plugins. So we have Prostat Telemetry on VMware, which is probably the most popular thing we have. We've got that in beta for Hyper-V coming out now. So we're now starting to add specific tags for not only databases, but hypervisors and operating systems as well. And our aim, if you think about it, is we, we want to try to alleviate all of that pain from the, operation, from the operations guys so that they can do stuff more importantly. Now, the interesting thing that we see is, you know, we're talking about stuff that just sits in a data center. Right, so all of this stuff over here, all the stuff we're used to, the problem is now is people are starting to push workloads out into public cloud. So all of a sudden I had my operations guys really tight for time trying to do everything inside their data center. And now someone said, that's okay, we're gonna put a whole load of stuff over here with a whole set of different management tools that they then have to go and operate as well. So it's not just the problem that we have internally, but it's the problem that we have when we go out to public cloud. So now from a HP InfoSight perspective, where we have customers that are using Azure and AWS are now asking us to say, hey look, how do we extend the capability of InfoSight to our public cloud? And it becomes even more important for us now that we're offering things like cloud volumes. So today you can take a nimble system, you can fire up some cloud volumes in AWS and Azure, and you can replicate your data out to a secondary site without having to buy any infrastructure. But someone still needs to look at what's going on out there. How much capacity am I using? Is anyone accessing it? Have I powered up any machines out there because I'm running workloads out there? So all of a sudden, if you look at what these operators have gone from, you know, very compact, consolidated environment to, you know, a sprawling environment that now spans their, their own data center and possibly one or two other public cloud data centers. So unless we start to look at AI, I'm going to skip through that one because it's marketing. Unless we start to use AI from an operations point of view, the operations teams are never going to keep up. And what will happen is the business's ability to evolve will start to slow down. And I'm going to give you an example of the complexity. You know, if you think about a mid-tier organization or an enterprise organization, you've got traditional applications, you've got physical machines, virtual machines, containerized applications, you've got cloud native applications, and then you've got a whole bunch of networking fiber channel networking, IP networking, NVMe over fabric, there's a whole load of networking stuff that's happening currently today. And then we're seeing customers start to deploy storage platforms that are workload optimized and driven by the requirements and the service levels of those applications. And the point I'm kind of trying to make here is this is a really complicated world. So, you know, troubleshooting a performance application on an SAP system for an operations guy, if he has to go and manually look at everything, takes hours. I know I've done it, I've done it with customers, it's time consuming. If we take the hours away and we use artificial intelligence within InfoSight to do it automatically and we solve that problem maybe in minutes, maybe it's an hour, but we've given that operator and all of the people that he's having to liaise with because he has to go and ask the networking guy for stuff and he has to go and ask the server team for stuff and he may have access to storage, we've effectively given him his eight hours of his day back and also more importantly probably pre prevented an application brownout or application issues. And then, of course, you get the user impact that would follow on from that. So from our perspective, you know, when we look at InfoSight, 
That's weird. I've got half a slide of each down there. It's very odd. Um, so we start to look at InfoSight, not only about just managing storage, but managing the entire stack. And then we say, well, if I've got all of the AI stuff doing 60, 70% of my operational stuff, capacity planning, telling me we're going to run out, how do we then make it easier from a deployment perspective as well? So now we have workload engine planners. So I can log into InfoSight. You know, one of my customers has 141 three-pars today globally. Um, 10 seconds to go, 141 systems globally. He doesn't want to log into each individual system or at least into an individual data center. He wants the capacity, he wants to go into InfoSight and he wants to know exactly where his storage is and exactly where he has capability for performance so he can go and deploy new applications without doing it manually. This is the power of, info, this is the power of AI and InfoSight from a case study perspective. Thousands and thousands and thousands of HP customers gaining the benefit of the investment that we've made into this platform that overall, operationally, saves most organizations 60 to 70% of their time, as well as limiting the amount of impact they have from IT issues. I had my 10 seconds warning, so I'm gonna close on there. And again, it's really important, on-premise and off-premise, and we're extending InfoSight to be able to look at things that we run in public cloud, and also on-premise, but also third-party products that customers are saying, hey, look, you know, we bought this third-party product as part of a solution from HP, can we incorporate that into InfoSight? So InfoSight is an open system, as long as we have REST API, so we can start to do cross-stack telemetry and operational management across more than just our own portfolio of products. Today, it's one of the biggest things that encourages customers to go down the HP storage route. And I think I'm out of time. Did I have a 10-second warning? I am. And I think they've turned the air conditioning off in here because it's now roasting. Uh, thank you, James. So, interesting, six different views from different vendors how AI is impacting their technologies and our customers. So what I'm going to do now is invite all the gents up on the stage and we're going to have a Q&A panel. So, gentlemen, please make this way, make it up here. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, so, this is going to be the opportunity for you all to ask some questions. Um, I thought we'd start with um, Paul. Um, we were going to ask him, given your experience of building a practice around AI at Dell EMC, obviously that's a, quite a large scale, but how would you recommend or what would you, um, or how would you suggest some interesting sort of ideas to our partners out here to build a, or start mm -hmm. building a, an AI practice? So, um at first, you'd be surprised uh, how small the scale is for a large company like Dell Technologies. Um, but that's important. The, the practice doesn't need to be super large. It, you, you, like any business, AI is in its kind of early stages. I, I would always start with getting a salesperson who is commercially astute. He or she really needs to understand how business works because here's the one tip I'm going to give you for absolute free that I'll repeat in the five-minute session at the end. If you don't know what your business problem is, and if your customer doesn't know what their business problem is, shout me down, but AI ain't gonna fix that business problem. And the corollary is true. If you really do know your business problem, but you don't understand AI, you can go and get the understanding. To get a commercial person who can see that, can take business problems, and using technology, turn them into something you can fix. 
then have someone who understands how software works. And they do not have to be the unicorn data scientist, but they need to understand how software works. And then if you're a channel partner that can see revenue through selling uh, development expertise and supporting that, you'll be competing with some very big businesses. There is huge space for people who've got two or three developers. We've got a beautiful case study in the Netherlands, a company that developed code for a company that makes mattresses that now have 80% of the Dutch healthcare market with a smart mattress that in effect collects telemetry data on whether patients have moved, whether the mattress is wet, whether the sheet needs changing, so many benefits for that. With a commercial point, a company that makes mattresses has embedded technology and got 80% of their market. That is revolution and it's turning technology into cash. And without a small practice, you can't talk to customers about that next step. Thank you, thank you. And um, would, you, would you say that there's, um, is, it, is it just for large enterprises or are you seeing projects in smaller businesses? Oh gosh, the, the, the mattress company employs 80 people. Okay. Um, Aerofarm's very small business to start with, so I picked them down as the opposite, thousands. Um, large enterprise will, of course, be, be adopting AI. Like all of us talk about our own AI, I think with the exception of Dell Technologies. Sorry about that, guys. Um, large will generally do it. The UK tax office has just had a 10 million pound win by using AI to automate their systems. That will flow down real quick. But look for your startups and your small companies that disrupt. Yeah. I've got to tell you this story. It's true. Nobody believed me. Rafael Zamora, 15 years ago, took a call from a company that wanted to buy a server. Three weeks later, they were buying 1,000 servers. Three weeks after that, they were buying 10,000 servers. The company is called Twitter. Companies we take for granted started small. Get to know your SMBs. Get to know them. There is more innovation there and government money for them to get to know that route. Okay, thank you. Uh, Simon Williams, um, in terms of um, security practices and building socks, where, where have you been seeing AI and that sort of technology sort of developing? How, what sort of things have you seen there from a strategic, strategic uh, perspective? So the, the reality is, as, as I said in my example, you know, 99% of the times you can proactively prevent and stop something happening. Yeah. It's the 1% that's the problem, and with the new regulations that are in with GDPR, the time to react, the time to identify, and time to uh, resolve the incident mm. are critical. Uh, and the great opportunity for partners in the room is, mm. you know, many enterprises or customers yep. don't have security skills. We know there's a security skill shortage in the industry. Mm. They'll have a not network operation center. Mm. They might have someone sat in the corner that has a CISSP manual and think they know security, but they don't. So the opportunity for the partners in the room is to build services around the SOC and consuming that information and the tools that we all make available to provide that service back to their clients. Okay, thank you. Any questions, audience? Any at all? No? So whilst we're talking about um, skills then and, and, and the lack of skills, uh, we start talking about people. What, what's, what do we think... Um, Simon Townsend, do you, what do you think about um, the, the perceived uh, AI is going to remove jobs? What, what's your views on that? It's going to change. It's going to change things, isn't it? I mean, mm. the, Joe said this this morning in the, the plenary. I, I guess we have a we have a massive ability to take away some of the repetition, 
some of that's already happened through automation. Mm. But I guess sort of thinking about my own pitch, there's a, there's a level at which the decision making becomes so complicated, it's beyond human ability. So then you get into an ability where you could you can actually bring in new jobs mm. that haven't been even thought of before. Yeah. I, I think there's there's yeah. a meme out there, isn't there, that says, th think of a number, 80% of the jobs that are going to be a, people are applying for in 10 years' time, ha don't actually exist yet. Yeah. So it's that it's that constant yeah. evolution. Yeah. So I, I don't share the fear that it's going to take jobs away. Yeah. It's going to take the current jobs away. Sure. But you've got to be prepared to, to evolve and change with it. Yeah, absolutely. So opportunities for people, growth, people doing different things within your businesses then, I guess. Um, so, come on, any questions out there? Mr. Russell, come on. <laughs> he looks behind him. <laughs> okay, here's a, here's a question for... So there's... Um, obviously, there's... A lot of our vendors have a capability through some kind of a performance hardware, some kind of clever AI in terms of management. What about the ISVs? What, what are we seeing in terms of some of the partnerships with some interesting, uh, there's this, uh, one company springs to mind for me is C3 AI. They do some really interesting things around financial analytics. Where do you see the opportunity around there for our partners to sort of help sort of engaging into that whole, uh, uh, that whole world? Do you see anything there, James? Perspective. When I've got a microphone. I think from our perspective, you know, HP, you know, we've got much better at partnering with people, but we can't boil the ocean. And we've realized, you know, the company's got smaller and smaller and smaller, and we've got more focused. Mm. Um, and therefore, you know, we don't want to be, we can't go and create everything because we'll do a bad job of it. Um, mm. And we can partner so far, mm. and then it becomes unmanageable. So we mm. rely on be 30 or 40% of a solution, similar to, to what um, Max was talking about. We have a certain percentage of it, but there's always going to be something new that we maybe haven't come across, mm. or a partner that has way more skills in that, mm. where we can take our element, put their element on top, and package that up as a solution. Yeah. And we're starting to do that more and more with partners, where we have a whole solutions team internally. Mm. They do all kinds of stuff, some of it traditional, some of it quite wacky, yeah. but they can't create everything. And so we're using working with partners as an opportunity to say, okay, hey, we didn't, you know, we're, why are you doing that? Okay, well, there's a market for this over here. Mm. We're using these guys because they're market leaders. Mm. And say, so, okay, well, how do we, can we build that on our hardware? Yeah. And then we, can we package that up as a reference architecture and, and go deliver that with you as a partner? And we're seeing that happen more and more because the, the, tin, the tin selling of the days, I mean, it still exists, people still buy hardware, yeah. but, but hardware doesn't give you a business outcome. Right? Yeah. A solution that fixes a known problem or an understood problem mm. yeah, is typically done by delivering a solution underneath it, not just bits and bots. Yeah. And from our perspective, partners are helping, you know, the, the ideal partner for me is the ones that are going out and looking for those business problems, mm. understanding that it isn't one technology or one vendor underneath it that's gonna fix it, but working with us and others to package that up and deliver it out as a, as a ratified solution to the customer that fixes a business problem and delivers value. Okay, wonderful, thank you, thank you. And, and Tim, so in terms of um, Lenovo, um, we see a lot of sort of partnerships with Lenovo and ISV or, ISV or software partners, whether they're building HEI stacks, etc. Where do you see that with your business and how's that gonna develop? For, for Lenovo, the uh, the power is in the partnerships, and, and, and you saw in the presentation I gave certainly two of them, for example, in, in Pivot3 and the, and, uh, and the AI inferences we can use with CCTV to do lots of great things, and you can apply that to, uh, you know, uh, highways, you can apply it to manufacturing facilities, you can apply it to agriculture to, the, to start to create out these systems. So it w 
inherently Lenovo is a hardware company um, and we innovate in the hardware and the SE350 is a prime example of in a software defined world we can still deliver innovation in the hardware but without those alliance partnerships to touch on the solutions that James just mentioned mm -hmm. um, it becomes uh, it comes a useless fact so hardware on its own is not going to is not going to float anybody's boat but again we address the business challenges and actually this goes back to the, the jobs thing that you just mentioned mm. i kind of disagree that jobs are at risk because i can guarantee you that these guys who have a perception that their job is at risk their job description does not say my entire time is spent keeping the lights on mm. their job description probably says unlocking the capability of their IT to create a more agile facility, whatever that facility might be. So actually utilizing AI to take away some of that pain, that means that they can fulfill that innovation gap between a static budget and business demand, mm -hmm. and then reprovision their time to do actually what their J jobs is supposed to be. So yeah. their jobs would be protected because they can actually do what they need to, it'll unlock new jobs, as Simon mentioned, in terms of utilizing AI to create jobs that we don't even know about yet, mm -hmm. and yet shrinks that innovation gap between budget and demand. Mm -hmm. So partnerships are gonna help us achieve that with top tier yeah. hardware vendors. Okay, okay. Uh, Max, with, with um, some of the Zenuity case, we saw some quite interesting things about how that architecture driven some interesting outcomes. How do you see that scaling? Is it, are you gonna see every hardware vendor building similar stacks or are they going to differentiate themselves I think, somehow? I think, um, I think we've seen that already with a lot of other vendors kind of partnering with NVIDIA to deliver kind of similar stacks. Mm. Um, <coughs> you know, from our perspective, <coughs> excuse me, uh, NVIDIA are the market leader when it comes to kind of GPU technology. Mm. So we're firmly kind of in bed with those guys, but then it's around some of the networking side. So whether you do things with Cisco or Arista mm. or even looking at some of the Mellanox technologies, mm. again, just to make that stack you know, faster, mm. more resilient, and kind of more capable of handling the kind of workloads mm. that customers are throwing at them. Mm. Because it's one of these situations where the more that somebody can do with the technology, the more that they can find they can do with it. Mm. So it isn't a case of thinking, I need a load of tech to do this job. They kind of get the technology to do a certain job, and then that spurs them on to do more things, to do more creative things, to actually iterate on the things they have already, to actually come out with more newer and kind of better solutions. Mm. So again, it's that sort of that ecosystem of partners really, that approach. Yeah, absolutely. So building the right set of partners to work with, it helps them drive better solutions for yeah. customers. So, okay, okay. So, uh, so this is a question for you, Simon. The, um, the DevOps, containers, agile methodologies, we've heard a lot of these big words over the last couple of years. How, how do you see that sort of affecting AI, you know, software defined, particularly somewhere VMware's journey at the moment? Yeah, for us, it's, it's very central to where we're going. Um, the, the world is evolving. Um, we, we, we're known, I guess, one of the, the common questions we get asked, you know, why, why are you even here having this conversation? Because your background's all about virtual machines and that's just legacy, isn't it, surely? Um, there's a very big focus for us about making sure that this platform we've talked about just becomes the platform that is simply the best place to run the applications, whatever shape mm. they are in. Yep. And I, I think the reality is there is not just one shape. Mm. So it's about trying to build that platform to make it capable of running all the things. Yep. Yep. Sort of linking back to your question about the ISVs mm. and how we're working with them. Yep. I think as an industry, we've spent far too long building these bespoke stacks. Mm. 
and it really is about time that we, we move to a solution where it's just pluggable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think the real challenge we have with the way that the industry's gone over the past, you know, five years with the real explosion towards cloud mm. is we're just moving back towards silos. Um, and that re that really doesn't help. So yeah. we need to drive interoperability yeah. and, and have the ability to really make the decision based on the business need on that day, yeah. if required, yeah. to deploy yeah. these things where yeah. they need to go. Yeah. So and I, I honestly think that's the way that yeah. this has to evolve yeah. so that you, you can deploy these workloads wherever you want them to go. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, James, so um, hyperscalers, we see hyperscalers, you know, developing quickly, building new products, solutions, go to market, you yep. know, very agile, very fast. How, how, when you speak to your customers about your kind of technologies, how, how, how are you sort of embedding the conversation with those guys, multi-cloud and HPE? Yeah, I mean, I think um, yeah, for, for most organizations, yeah. when they, there's always a certain number of, there's always certain applications that are particularly easy or at least less risky to pick up and move, right? Um, and that, so I think most organizations, and it depends really on their size, um, pretty much everyone has a strategy in some way, shape or form to have a hybrid public cloud, private cloud. Yep. Some want to go 100% um, public. I, I'm like, yeah, I've not seen anyone really succeed in, in that very successfully, mm. uh, not without spending a ton of money. Um, but I think, you know, it, for an organization has to go through the process of understanding what is the right thing to move yeah. And, and, where, and where is the right place to put it? Yeah. And also, how does that interact with things that are left on-premise? I think a lot of organizations kind of pick and choose or think that's an easy thing to move. So find the use case, where's the pain? Is it long-term retention of data? It's an easy one to go and look at. It's an easy one to go and look at public cloud and look at the hyperscalers. Okay. Um, are you going to pick up your ERP SAP system mm -hmm. and move it into AWS? Unlikely. Mm -hmm. So again, for most organizations, they need to go through the process. We need to help them go through the process of understanding, mm -hmm. A, what they've got, what, how important those things are, what happens if they don't run, yeah. and where are they best suited to go. And we have the same conversation with, with storage all the time. You know, we used to sell on speeds and feeds. Mm. Today it's a workload conversation. What does the workload look like? How do you need to service it? Mm. What are your service levels around RPOs and RTOs? Mm. And then we will map that to the best storage technology that we have in the portfolio. Okay. It's exactly the same for an application, whether you're gonna put it on-premise, in a public cloud, or even with you know managed service provider. Mm. Yeah. And then using InfoSites, uh and we can absolutely, maximize the, we absolutely uh, can, yeah. Okay, okay. So, any questions? One minute to go. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Amelia. Hello, Amelia. I just want to ask if you feel comfortable with uh, uh, how um, cybersecurity is catching up and if you feel that the next generation data center that we're talking about uh, is secure now. Simon Peel, I think. <laughs> I think it'd be naive to say we're comfortable. Um, I've been in security for 20 plus years and I've never been comfortable. The challenge we have in security particularly is as, as I as the, the protector learn more and my security gets better, the adversary gets smarter. And you've got to remember, cybercrime is very well funded, it's very profitable and that drives behavior. So will I ever be comfortable with it? No, I'll never be comfortable with the security of my house, my car, my personal data ever, because when I do that, I become complacent and I make mistakes. Thank you. Any other questions? Go on then. Thank you. 
We talk about cost of change. Um, how's that impacted each of your organizations when it comes to R&D? Are we seeing more people being put into your R&D divisions? Are we seeing more investment going into that space? So are we just moving cost around to support that? Who would like to take that one? Go on. It's a first, a fantastic question. Um, I'm a firm believer that you know, this digital revolution is absolutely apparent when we've got smart mattresses and aero farms and then established companies like GE with Praxis, whether it works or not, it's a different question. Um, the the R&D has to increase to match it. Now, one of the things I look at is, you know, this is not about the EU, this is about the EU invested $7 billion in artificial intelligence, of which 50% came from public sector. Meanwhile, the United States invested $120 million. China invested the equivalent of $200 million in AI. R&D has to go up. You're not moving that money around. As we've seen, companies that invest in AI make more money for less cost. Now, I started life as an accountant. Don't hate me for it. Let me give you this second business tip for free. If you make more money for less cost, you're doing better business than your competitor. And I know that might be shocking to some of the techies in the room. But scale matters as well. Read a book called Blick Scaling, you'll find that LinkedIn's average margin is 87.5%. Now look at Walmart and go, son of Freddie Mercury, is this a sustainable business model, Walmart? I don't know. Ask Ocado, ask Amazon. The world is hyper-changing. If you are not investing in R&D, you are already dead. You can argue well, that one. We can see how people are using our technology. We might have a feature um, that almost no one uses, right? So we take the engineers away from that and we put them on something where we see all of the people using technology. So for us, InfoSight is not only to deliver value to the customers, it helps us make engineering decisions and resource decisions about where we should put those dollars. No one ever goes anywhere, but we might take people from here and put them there. We might move them around, but it helps us as a business make much better decisions when it comes to engineering new platforms. Wonderful. I think that's another thing I'd add that I, I've observed in my time at VMware. When I joined VMware, we, we published a two-year roadmap for our business, for our software. It's very difficult now because of the pace of change to have that conversation because R&D simply has to be more agile than that. And actually, it's a great, it's a great use case for our technology. We're in the software business, so we're running a development pipeline and need to do lots of, test, lots of testing, lots of deployment. And actually, the, the VMware internal cloud is a massive scale. We're, we're talking about 50,000 uh, VM creates and destroys per week. So in order to keep to that pace of change, you've got to have that infrastructure underlying it and be able to drive that agility through the whole of your business. Makes it hard to plan. Thank you. Well, I think that's about it. I think we're, we're out of time. So uh, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Uh, enjoy your afternoon.